working our way through 1 Corinthians. And we want to make sure that we get a good understanding of what Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthian church. Because again, I think that what he is saying applies to us as well. Like I said, we'll be looking at chapters 10 and 11, right? So I'll come to this. We'll be looking at chapters 10, verses 14 through 22. And we will also be looking at chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. Let's pray. Father, again, we come before you. We want to look at your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can find things in your word that both challenge us and also comforts us. We ask, Lord, that you would teach us, uh, like Job, to be able to take the good with the bad. Help us to know that everything that you say in your word, those things that are comforting and those things that are challenging, are there to produce spiritual maturity in us. We ask, Lord, that you would give us hearts uh, to, to study your word and to read your word, but also um, hearts that are willing to obey in all things. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want to talk from these two chapters about the importance of Christian fellowship. The importance of Christian fellowship. Now, I want to use for an introduction uh, a question that was asked of me last week, and I get this uh, the, a, a larger part of this question often. Okay, and so last week when we had our leadership meeting, someone in the leadership meeting asked, "Can we stream our services online, live?" Okay, they wanted to know if we could move to streaming our services online, live, so that uh, you know, those people who are not coming to church are able to watch service from home. Okay. Now, I'm not going to go into the full conversation of, you know, of my answer to that. Um, I want to really narrow in my, my focus on the importance of Christian fellowship. Why does God require people or Christians to worship him together in church and why online church is an oxymoron and this is goes to uh, uh, is part of a larger discussion about whether or not it is necessary for christians to consistently uh be inside of the fellowship of other believers okay and i think that this question turns on uh on really two major points okay um, well, really three, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to skip one of those points today. The first uh, major point that I think this uh, question turns on is, does God have the right to dictate how he is to be worshipped? Does God have the right to dictate how he is to be worshipped. 
Now, usually when I have this conversation with people, people will say, well, times have changed. Technology has changed. We now have the ability to no longer go to a church building. We can remain at home and still get every single thing at home that you would get in church. And usually when I have this conversation, I respond to people with my second point. Uh, but my second point really is is secondary. OK, the primary issue is. Does God have the right to dictate how he is to be worshipped? And we could go to Malachi and say the Lord says, I, the Lord, do not change. The times may change. Technology may change. But I, the Lord, I do not change. Now, let's look at two passages in the Old Testament surrounding this question. We could have looked at, 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 at several more. Uh, does God have the right to dictate how he is to be worshipped? I want you to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. We know that God told Moses how he is to be worshipped. He told Moses how he is to be worshipped, and this was implemented in the rituals of the Levitical priesthood. I want us to look at an, at an example of when two people decided not to worship God as he required. Leviticus chapter 10. Verse 1 reads, Now Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his censer, put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and they offered unholy fire before the Lord, such as he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord meant when he said, through those who are near me, I will show myself holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron was silent. Moses summoned Mishael and Elzaphan, sons of Uziel, the son of Aaron, and said to them, come forward and carry your kinsmen away from the front of the sanctuary to a place outside the camp. They came forward and carried them by their tunics out of the camp and Moses, as Moses had ordered. And Moses said to Aaron and to his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, do not dishevel your hair and do not tear your vestments or you will die and wrath will strike all the congregation. But your kindred, the whole house of Israel, may mourn the burning that the Lord has sent. You shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting or you will die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is on you. And they did as Moses had ordered. Now, notice what is happening here. God has set up the way he is to be worshipped. And he tells them they must not deviate from the way he has required them to be him to be worshipped. Nadab and Abihu, for some reason, they decide that they are going to go before the Lord and they are going to offer uh, incense um, in a way that God has not required. They treat 
God casually. And as they're standing right there before the altar, it says fire comes out from the altar and he burns them up right there and they die before the Lord. And then Moses says to his father, God says, I like the uh, the different version, New King James Version is better. He says, God has said, those who come near me must regard me as holy. Now you go tell Aaron, he better not cry for his son. He better not mourn for his son. He better not let the people see him any way show sympathy for someone who disrespected me or he will die too. Because everybody who comes before me, they better regard me as holy. They better treat me the way I deserve. God has the right to dictate how he is to be worshipped. And God takes very seriously the way people worship him. I want you to turn to the book of Malachi. For all of those who have finished reading through 1 Corinthians, you can start reading Malachi five times. That's where we're going next. And we're going to we're going to go beyond the one sermon you've ever heard from the book of Malachi, which is, well, a man robbed God. <laughs> and that, that is the only sermon you've ever heard in the book of Malachi. Right. A, a, the book of Malachi is about tithes and that's it. Give me your tithes. And then we move on to a different book. OK. <laughs> Listen to what God says to the nation and to the priest because they are not worshiping him in the way that he has dictated. Chapter 1, starting at verse 6. A son honors his father and servants their masters. If then I am a father, where is the honor due me? And if I am a master, where is the respect due me? says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name. You say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food on my altar. And you say, how have we polluted it? By thinking that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not wrong? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not wrong? Try presenting that to your governor. Will he be pleased with you or will he show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. Real quick, listen to what he says. He says, I am a father and a master. You show your father and your master's respect. But as a father and as a master, where's my respect? You all come before me and you throw me something on the altar as an offering that you yourself don't want. If your governor came in here, you wouldn't give him something like that. You would show him honor and respect. But you think you can come and play with me. Verse nine. And now. Implore the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. The fault is yours. Will he, meaning God, show you any favor, 
says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that someone among you would shut the temple doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I would rather you not even come if you aren't going to show me the proper respect. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name is great among the nations. And in every place, incense is offered to my name and a pure offering for my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and the food for it may be despised. What a weariness this is, you say. And you sniff at me. What what a weariness this is. I got to actually get up and come to church and present myself before the Lord. What a weariness this is. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring me as an offering. You I mean, shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in the flock and vows to give it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is reverenced among the nation. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not lay it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse on you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. I will rebuke you, your offspring, and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and I will put you out of my presence. Priest and people, if you do not treat me the way I demand, I will spread the dung of your offerings on your face. And I will put you out of my presence. God requires serious, undistracted worship. God requires serious, undistracted worship. Now, in my, again, in my opinion, and we've talked about this, this last week, online church allows us to pretend that we are completely focused on God while actually allowing us to be distracted. Now, again, I gave this example last week, right? Uh, in the pandemic, of course, we have had to close down. We use these different things. But listen, I, when, when we are online doing church, people are vacuuming floors, they're looking at the camera as they're going by, you know. People are, are cooking breakfast, <laughs> right? People, people are laying in the bed watching TV, right? Uh, we see it on Bible study because it's at night. It's like we, you got the camera, but we see the light in the background. But we're there. 
Every time we start the Zoom call, we hear MSNBC running in the background, and I have to literally go, go through and start clicking people off. And then when they come off of mute, the TV is still on. We still hear it. We are not giving God what he deserves. We pretend that we are focusing on the Lord while actually focusing on our distractions. But God requires serious undistracted worship and that is why he requires his people to make the sacrifice of getting up and coming to worship him now you can be distracted in church you can but you don't have the tv and the stove and all of that other stuff as a distraction right your, your distractions are very limited they're limited to the distractions in your head okay I think the second point that this question turns on is what is a Christian and what is a church? What is a Christian and what is a church? I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I, I bring this up because I've went been uh, online. I was watching this series of YouTube videos and uh, I'm not going to name the org organization, but they have been doing this series called Why We Don't Go. Okay. <laughs> and uh, it, it's funny when a Christian apologetics organization runs series explaining why people, justifying why people don't go to church. And I'm like, I, I thought apologetics was supposed to be like the, like the opposite and so and so the, the, the host is is explaining that, you know, we, we have to we have to let people come and explain, you know, why they they don't come. And it's not our place to judge. We can't tell them that they're wrong or explain why, you know, they should be coming. We just have to let them say why they're not coming and just accept it. I'm just like, I don't understand apologetics then. I just don't. I just don't understand it. OK. Maybe, you know, apologetics changed after 2006 when I left seminary. I don't I don't know. Maybe it's a new apologetics. But but one of the people in this in in the video, he quotes Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. And and he has a, a, a new interpretation of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, um, a, 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 a an interpretation that is that is must be very popular today. OK. Listen, to, this is what Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says. It says, uh, do not, well, let me, I, I'm about to give you to in the New King James Version. I need to, we switch to New, New Revised Standard Version. Let's read it here. It says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Okay, so don't neglect gathering together Right. And so uh, when people quote this verse, they only quote the verse phrase. OK. Don't neglect the gathering together of the of the saints. Right. They quote that first phrase. And, and so the new interpretation is, is that while you don't have to come to church to do that, you can just 
I mean, I could gather with uh, Christian friends that I have outside of church. Okay. Now, it's interesting that they don't quote the whole verse, nor do they quote the other verses with the context. Okay. So listen to what it actually says. Okay. And I think that the reason that people make this argument is because we don't really understand what a Christian is. And we don't really understand what the church is. Now, listen to all of the verses in context. Okay. Um, and then in particular, verse 25. Notice here that Paul uses pronouns that refer to a group of people. Okay. So contrary to what these people think, they think that a Christian is an individual that comes to church for personal growth. Okay. Paul says the opposite. Verse 19. <clears throat> he says, therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now notice here, now what I would ask you to do is this. If you would like to do a wonderful project, if you would go through the New Testament and see how many times the phrase one another is used, you will be amazed. Just the phrase one another. But notice what he says. Not only does he in this whole paragraph start talking about our hope, our faith, we, us, all of these things talking about a collective group of people, a collective group of things that we share. He actually says in verse 25, well, 24 and 25. Let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. How can we encourage each other to love one another more and to do good deeds? Not neglecting to meet together, meet together. Now, does that meeting together mean like come to church or does it mean like me and my friends can get together at Starbucks and that still counts? Okay. Well, I think he answers that question in the same verse. He says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So when we make the argument that, well, I don't have to come to church, I can just meet outside the church, Paul addresses that. People are already starting to do that. They aren't gathering together. They have already started the habit of not meeting. It's the habit of some. It's the opposite of the people who are saying, well, I don't have to come. I can just do something else. Okay. So 
the gathering together is specifically referring to us meeting together for corporate fellowship. Everybody see that? Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 to 25 tells us that the church and salvation is not about individuals only. It is not about individuals only. It is also about us as Christians collectively. We have personal spiritual growth. But that personal spiritual growth is only exercised as we come together collectively to worship God. Now, here's my definition of a church and Christians. And I, I take this definition by taking what is historically um, been said about the church, about what the church is, right, when we go back to the uh, Protestant Revol- Reformation, um, and adding it with um, what, what I think the Bible actually says, the five things that the Bible actually says the church is supposed to do, okay? So here's my definition. The church is a body of believers, okay, so Christians. It, the church is a body of believers, okay, who gather together, around the word and the sacraments. So that's the basic definition that you will see by, you know, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Protestant reformers, okay? So it is a body of believers who gather together around the word and the sacraments, communion and baptism, the Lord's Supper and baptism. That is what we gather for, the word and to take part in communion and baptism. And I think that the Bible um, says these five things, and collectively to fulfill God's purposes of evangelism, discipleship, fellowship, worship, and service. And now, this is what I ask people when they say, well, I don't, I don't go to church. I, you know, I, I fellowship with people outside of church. I thought, okay, that's great. How often do you and your Christian friends, when you fellowship outside of church, how often are you all sitting together to share the word? Oh, yeah, we talk about the word all the time. Okay, how often do you all do communion together? Because when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11, that is the essence of our relationship with Christ. So if we aren't spending time with the word and having communion, we are not a church. We aren't even fulfilling what we're supposed to be doing. It is a body of believers who gather together around the word and the sacraments and collectively fulfills God's purpose of evangelism, discipleship, fellowship, worship, and service. And that's what I ask them. How often do you all spend time in the word together? How often do you all take communion together? How often do you all baptize people together? How often are you all out there evangelizing together? How often are you all discipling other people? How often are you uh, fellowshipping with the other, each other? How often are you all worshiping e- with each other? How often are you all doing serving one another? You, paying, you sending money to missionaries together? By the time I finish asking all the questions, they either calling me a name or ending the conversation. Because the truth is, we are not being a church at Starbucks. We, that, that's just an excuse. 
you must be doing all of these things. All of these elements must be present or you really don't have a church. All of these elements must be present or you do not really have a church and you really cannot be growing as a Christian without all of these elements working. Because again, this is what the Bible says a Christian is and what a church is and what a Christian does and what a church does. Now, let me say this. The reason I say that you cannot really be growing as a Christian without all of these elements is because you cannot be growing as a Christian while actively disobeying God. That's just that's just the truth. Like you can't you know, you, you can't be growing if you actively disobeying God. If God says you need to do X, Y, Z, you're like, I don't feel like doing X, Y, Z. You know, times have changed. So I'm going to do, you know, A, B, and C. It's like you, you cannot be growing if you are actively disobeying God. Now, with all that in mind, let's look at one of the essential duties of the church, and that is taking part in the Lord's Supper. Here, we will see how serious communion and the fellowship with other Christians are to be taken. Okay. So this is my third point. What I want us to see here is being a Christian creates an essential unity with Christ, an essential unity with Christ. And everyone accepts that, right? I, I'm, I have a, this, this union with Christ because I'm a Christian. But that's not where Christianity stops, <laughs> We have an essential unity with Christ and with other Christians that is demonstrated and strengthened during the Lord's Supper. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We have an essential union with Christ and with other Christians that is demonstrated and strengthened during the Lord's Supper. Now, I am a good Baptist. <laughs> you know, I, I, I do believe in the, um, the memorial view of communion. Okay, I'm, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not Catholic, so I don't believe in transubstantiation. I don't believe that, that the, the bread and the wine be actually becomes the physical body and physical blood of Jesus. I, I don't believe that. Um, I'm not Lutheran, so I don't believe in the consubstantiation that that um, the body and blood of Jesus does not become physically his his body and blood. But Jesus becomes present with the bread and the wine as we take part in communion. OK, um, so I, I do subscribe to uh, Zwingli's memorial view. However, I do think that. Um, John Calvin was was right in saying that there is some form of spiritual participation or union that comes along with taking communion. OK, um, so I think that we we see this here in first Corinthians chapter 10. OK, look at verse 14. It says, therefore, my dear friends. Flee from the worship of idols. 
I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing, a fellowship, a koinonia? Okay. Is it not a relationship in the blood of Christ? The, the bread that we break, is it not a sharing, a partnership, a koinonia, a, a fellowship, a relationship in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar? What do I imply then, that food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, in the middle of this whole conversation that Paul is having about um, why Christians should not eat things that are sacrificed to idols, right? He, he talks about that when we are, are participating in communion, right, we are having some form of koinonia, some form of fellowship, some form of rel relationship with Christ. And you cannot have this intimate fellowship with Christ. Remember, the word for koinonia is used of the sexual relationship with a husband and wife. You're having such an intimate relationship with Christ that you should not do the same type of rituals for idols because you can't have this type of relationship with Christ and idols at the same time, or you will be provoking the Lord and you are not stronger than he is. Okay. Now he uses the same word koinonia <laughs> here verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless talking about communion the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing, a koinonia, the same word of union between a husband and a wife, is it not a koinonia of the, in the blood of Christ? It's our fellowship in the blood of Christ. And the bread that we break, is it not our koinonia, our sharing with, with him and one another in the body of Christ? Because... There is one bread. We who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread. He is saying that communion is demonstrating and strengthening your fellowship with Christ. So, again, I, even though I, I hold to a memorial view, I do agree with parts of what John Calvin said. It is strengthening your relationship with Christ, but it is not only strengthening your relationship with Christ. It is demonstrating and sharing and strengthening and demonstrating your relationship with one another. We are bonded together to one another in a similar way that we are bonded to Christ. In the same way, we cannot forsake fellowship with Christ, 
we cannot forsake fellowship with one another. Jesus talks about this in the Gospel of John before he is crucified. Here in the Gospel of John, I want you to look at real quickly, briefly, in John chapter 15 and in John chapter 17. This is where we get what we call uh, the doctrine of perichoresis. Don't even write it down. I know some people like P. What was that again? (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) Okay. But uh, this doctrine is what we call the mutual indwelling of the Trinity. Okay. The mutual indwelling of the Trinity. And it explains the relationship between the three persons of the Trinity. So so how do the, the three persons of the Trinity, you know, relate or how are they unified in one divine nature right how how is the one divine being united as in in three persons okay this is what we call the doctrine of perichoresis and we get this uh, from jesus's conversation about himself and the father in john chapter 15 look at verse 18 john chapter 15 verse 18 says, if the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own because you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the world, the word that I said to you, servants are not greater than their masters. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But they will do all these things to you on account of me, because they do not know him who sent me. <clears throat> Did I write down the wrong verse? There we go. Okay. Um, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. It was to fulfill the word that is written, they hated me without a cause. When the advocate comes, right, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who comes from the father, he will testify on my behalf. You also are to testify because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, here Jesus starts this uh, conversation, right, about his relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, right? Now, we know that the Bible says that the Father sends the Son, okay? And then we also know that the Bible, that here Jesus says that he will send the Holy Spirit, Now, Jesus continues this conversation in talking about his relationship with the father and with the son. And he talks about how they are united. I want you to turn over to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. John 17. Verse 20, 
This is what Jesus says. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, taking all of these chapters together, together what Jesus says about himself and the Father and about the Holy Spirit, right? Notice what he says here. He says that he is in the, in the Father. And then he says that the Father is in him. Right. They have this mutual indwelling so that wherever Jesus is, the father is and wherever the father is, Jesus is. And wherever the Holy Spirit is, both the father and the son is. Right. So that when Jesus says, I'm going away, but I will come to you. How are you coming to us, Jesus, if you go away? Because I'm going to send the spirit to be in you. And when the spirit is in you, me and my father will be there with you because the father and the son are in the spirit and the spirit is in the father and in the son. They have this mutual indwelling because they are one. Now, notice what Jesus says. He says, Father, I'm praying that they are one the same way we are one. I'm praying that they would have the same type of union amongst themselves that we have. And when they have that type of union, the way that we have, the world will know that you have sent me. Maybe the world is confused about who Jesus is because we aren't living who we supposed to be. Because the chimes have changed. We ain't got to do all of that. That stuff is not required anymore. Jesus is saying that he is creating a body of believers that are one in a similar way, right? We can't be one the same way the Father and the Son are are one, but we are, are one in a similar way to how the members of the Trinity are one. And Paul picks up on this idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when he talks about the unity or the oneness that is expressed in the Lord's Supper. When we come together and we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are expressing and demonstrating our oneness with one another and with Christ. And this union between Christ and believers and between believers and other believers is so strong and serious that violating it incurs judgment, which includes sickness and death. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This union is so serious 
that when we violate this union, it incurs judgment, which includes sickness and death. Now, we all know this passage. Uh, we read from this passage every communion, right? We, we, we know the part, verses 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night on which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We know that. We got that part. Listen how Paul starts off this section, verse 17. He starts off by addressing the abuses of the Lord's Supper. He's addressing how the church is violating the importance of communion. Verse 17, now in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Indeed, there have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with his own supper, and one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? <laughs> or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. Then he goes on to, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered unto you. Right. So listen to what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you all come together. And so communion then is not, you know, you have a little wafer in a little plastic container and we, we drink it and we leave. Okay. That, that is a part of the times have changed. Okay. But, but their communion was called a love feast. They would have service. And at the end of service, then they would eat together as a, as a, as a body. And so you would have some people bring, bring food and different things, right? So they could share with, with, with one another. But, but, but there are, there are some people who would come late because remember, we're in a society where you have people that are slaves. They, they work and then they get off when they get off. Right. Indentured servants is, 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 the, is what I'm making, making the point of. And so so some people are coming late, but some people show up with their food and like, I got my food. I don't, it don't matter if you don't have anything. And we, we eat all of our food and, and we're not worried about the other people in the church that may have less than us or who may not have have anything right so we're not sharing and some people are coming they bring their food and they like and they bring their wine too and they just sit on back and they just kick back and throw them back and, and so so we're getting drunk at communion we, we, we're hoarding the food for ourselves at communion we're not caring about the people who have needs that are in the fellowship and paul says you all are misunderstanding the whole point of the fellowship, the whole point of this communion meal. And he goes into talking about this. is why I believe he brings up uh, what Jesus did with his disciples on the night before he was crucified. Think about how Jesus served his disciples. They all came together. They all sat down. 
they ate as one. They ate from the same bread. They drank from the same cup. Jesus got up and washed their feet. And then they all ate together. That's the example that we should be following when we come together. Not everyone brings their own food. I don't, I don't like that food. I, that's the poor people food. I got, I got my own special food. <laughs> and then you eat your stuff and you don't share with other people and you drink it. That, that's not how we do communion. Now, listen to what Paul goes on to say, starting in verse 27. Okay. So when we, when we hear these passages, what we tend to think, again, is because we are an individual society it's all about me so when we hear these words we think about ourselves okay listen what he says in verse 27 whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the lord examine yourselves and only only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup so we think okay i gotta take communion i know i've been sinning lord please forgive me I want to take the communion in a in a worthy manner. I don't want to be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So I'm examining myself, Lord. Forgive me. Right? So that's what people ask. We're like, right before we take communion, let's let's pray and let's ask God to forgive us for anything. And that's because we keep thinking selfishly. This passage is not telling you. That before you take communion, you need to confess your sins. Lord, I know I stole that thing from my job. I, I'm sorry, Lord. I, I, I'm sorry. Forgive me, Lord, so I can take this communion and not drop dead. That's not what this passage is saying. He says, examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we are not to be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another. If you are hungry, eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation about the other things. I will give instructions when I come. Notice the whole context of all of these verses is how we treat one another. How we fellowship with one another, how we relate to one another. So when Paul says that before you take part in this, examine yourself, confess your sins, examine yourselves so that you don't eat and drink damnation to yourself so that you don't be sick or weak or possibly even die. It has nothing to do with the, the secret sins that you're thinking about in your head. It's about how you are treating one another. Are you violating the fellowship and communion of the body? Because he says... For all who eat and drink without discerning the body. The body. <laughs> if you take part in communion, you're having conflicts with people in the body. 
you shouldn't touch that bread and cup because the point of communion is to demonstrate and express the relationship we have with one another. And if we're in conflict or we're not meeting with each other, I can't stay in the church. They a bunch of hypocrites. I'm going to stay at home watching on TV. You should not touch that. Because you're pretending to be in fellowship with people you are not in fellowship with. And because we don't discern the Lord's body correctly, we don't treat one another correctly, we violate the fellowship of, the, of, of, the belie- of one another, the believers in Christ. Some of us are sick. Some of us are weak. And some of us, God is just going to call home. You're not going to play with my body. I died for that body. I shed my blood for that body. I gave my life for that body. And anyone who violates the fellowship of my body, they're going to have to deal with me. And as Paul said in verse chapter 10, are you stronger than him? Communion is not something we are supposed to take lightly. It is a demonstration and a strengthening of our relationship with Christ and with one another. It is an essential part of what a church is and what a Christian is supposed to be doing. Just like you know, we don't take baptism trivially, trivially right? It's, it's, I'm a Christian. I have to identify with Christ. I, I, I want to get baptized, right? Communion is the same way. It is, it is literally, to use a different example, um, I'll use a word that hopefully only adults use, that, w- that the same way we consummate a marriage, right, the first time, that's like baptism. But there's an ongoing relationship between a, a husband and a wife, right, where we are, in essence, reestablishing or reenacting our union, right? That's the Lord's Supper. We we don't get baptized every week. I need to get saved. Let me get baptized every week. No, no, no. We don't need to do that every week. The way we show our ongoing relationship with Christ and with one another is the Lord's Supper. And it is so serious that when we treat it trivially, we will incur God's judgment. That's why I said that the title of this message is The Importance of Christian Fellowship. It is not something that that God or Christ or the Holy Spirit takes lightly. It is something that that the, that the Bible says that the, the Holy Spirit creates, Ephesians chapter 4. Okay. And it is something that Jesus created with his own blood 
And it is not something that we should treat trivially, right? It, it is something that, that we need to, to take very seriously because God takes it very seriously. And when we come together, we are demonstrating to God our worship of him. And if we are worshiping God seriously, right, we have to be treating one another properly <laughs> because the way we treat one another is indicative of how we truly worship God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we have been able to come together and look at your word. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in all of our hearts, Lord, because there are times where all of us get on the wrong side of other Christians. <laughs> as human beings, Lord, we, um, all of us are in, at sometimes annoying <laughs> and we can easily annoy one another. And the truth be told, we are oftentimes closer to some than others, but I pray Lord that you would help us to see that that is not something that we, uh, that should be true of the body of Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter four, we must endeavor, we must put forth all of our effort to maintain the unity of the spirit. That is the unity that the Holy Spirit created. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand the fellowship that we have as believers, both with you and also with one another. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to realize that we will not be able to convince the world of your lordship if we are not properly in fellowship with one another as you said in the gospel of john lord we confess that our actions towards one another is oftentimes a hindrance to the gospel That we aren't loving one another the way that we should love one another. We are not in fellowship with one another the way that we should be in fellowship with one another. And it is detracting from other people coming to submit to you as Lord. We confess that, Lord. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to have the same level of understanding and commitment to the fellowship of the church that you have. Because you said that when we are all one the same way you are one, then the world will know that you have been sent by the Father. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to work on us, help us to develop strong relationships with one another, to strengthen and encourage one another, to not neglect the gathering together of the saints so that we can encourage one another and we can strengthen one another. And all the more, as Paul says in Hebrews 10, 26, as we see the day approaching, the closer and closer we get to the day of your return, we need more and more encouragement and strengthening of one another, not neglecting one another. Pray, Lord, that you will work in all of us so that we could can can worship you the way that you require with undistracted devotion so that we can give you what you truly deserve. We thank you now for all these things in Jesus name. Amen. Amen.